0: And as you're being seated, if you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. This is a wonderful section of Scripture uh, that we will look at today that has a wonderful relevance uh, to the day-to-day life that we have today. We'll be in the book of Ruth, chapter 2. Listen carefully, because this is God's word to you today. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings You have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. We'll read the other half as we go along, but we will start here with this portion that we have. But before we do, let's go to our God in prayer. And let's ask his blessing on our message today. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this word that you have given to us, this holy proclamation that has been breathed out by you. And I pray that you would fulfill your promise and that it would have a reproving and correcting and teaching influence, a transforming influence on our hearts. We ask all these things in in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it has been well said by one of my favorite preachers, John Piper, who had said, at any given point in your life, the Lord is doing 10,000 things, and you are aware of maybe three of them. This is the mystery of what we call providence, the way that the Lord sees to every detail in our lives. And we see this sort of thing happening in Ruth and Naomi's life, don't we? How the Lord has provided, even in the midst of terrific tragedy that has been happening since chapter one, but how the Lord has used even that very thing to weave together the rest of this story, as we'll see in the remaining chapters of this book. But oftentimes, providence feels like happenstance. In fact, even the author kind of does this with a wink and a nod as he talks about Ruth happening to end up in Boaz's field, the very one that she needs to make the connection with. And we'll see how all that puts together. I almost titled this sermon, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Barley Harvest, because that seems to be what has occurred. But the Lord has been involved in all of it. But now as we go through this process, we can tend to have a misunderstanding of what providence is, that providence is some sort of fate. You're going to be dragged through whatever it is that you're going to go into in your life, and you even against your will being dragged into a field to go and meet your future spouse. That's not how providence works. You are making real choices. You are excising your real will. But the Lord is so good. He is using even those things, ordained even those choices as we move along to bring us exactly to this point to where we are here. And we'll see as we go through this process that uh, as we look at our two points, that God works through our circumstances, those things that are outside of our control, and God works through our character. This is not something where we're just dragged along by life. But the Lord is working and transforming us to bring about his will, even in the choices that we make. And we'll see that as we unfold this chapter. So let's remind ourselves, as we begin here in chapter two, that Ruth and Naomi are in a very difficult spot. And it's hard to comprehend just what a strait that these two ladies are in. Today, we, we live in a country that is blessed with numerous social safety nets and many ways that widows are able to provide for themselves. They're able to enter the workforce by logging onto our computers in our living rooms and be able to make money in these ways. But here in this culture, that was not the case. If you wanted to eat, you had to grow it. Or you had to hope that somebody who did grow it would let you have some of it. Here in this culture, the closest thing that they had to a social safety net was with the practice of gleaning. So in God's word, it was it was God's law that when you planted a field of something, you couldn't harvest all the way to the very corner of your field. You had to leave some of it behind. So this way, those who were poor or those who were new to the country would be able to come in and glean from those corners and wouldn't have to ask. They could just walk up and take those portions because it was for them. Also, if you were carrying a bunch of your grapes, let's say, and a bundle fell out of your arms and hit the the ground, you couldn't pick it up. That was for the poor to take. This was something that the Lord must have knocked that grape cluster out of your arms and is now going to be there for the poor. the problem is, as we remember back in chapter 1, this is during the days of the judges. This is a time of absolute lawlessness in Israel, as many commentators pointed out to us. These are people that weren't listening to God's laws, that didn't care about the poor, didn't care about the widow, and were very happy to harvest all the way to the edge of their fields because they had themselves to look after after all. And here we have Naomi and Ruth. They have no husbands, they have no sons. Without a male representative, it's very hard to do any sort of business here in here in the world. No one to defend them, and no one to force their way onto a field. And what's worse is we have here Ruth, and you'll notice many times, almost every time, when Ruth's name is mentioned, it follows Ruth the Moabite. People who were particularly unpopular in Israel, because when Israel was coming out of slavery... The Moabites refused to feed them. And because of that, they were, they were cursed by God. So here we have Naomi with no husband, no sons, because they all died in Moab. And she has this foreigner, Ruth, who's with her. And who, last time, if you recall, as one commentator pointed out, she says that she has come back empty. And she's saying this with Ruth right next to her. But let's see how God works through circumstances. It seems pretty bleak. There's no farm. There's no food, no representation, no safety, no income. What's God going to do here? Well, let's find out. Let's see how powerful our God is. We have Ruth who's volunteering to go out and to glean in these fields. This is a very risky thing for her to do. As we mentioned, this is the time of the judges. There is no reason why these men would behave themselves. She's going out into this field as taking a risk of abuse. This is when everyone was being quite awful. But here she's going to go out into this field. Now, it's important here in these first couple of verses, the author is setting up our circumstances and is quickly introducing us to Boaz. So we'll know whose field we wander into when we get there. And it mentions that Naomi has a relative of her husband, whose name is Boaz, who is of his same clan. This will become more important when we get into chapter 3. This, to give you a preview of that, Boaz might be the future for them. He could be somebody that could marry into the family and provide income for them. And we set up who this person is, that he is a worthy man of this same clan, who is obviously quite wealthy to have had a field large enough to need multiple workers. In fact, somebody to watch over and manage all of those workers. So this is quite an eligible bachelor that we see setting up here in verse 1. But now we see how the Lord is working through in these circumstances, even before we get onto this playing field. The Lord has provided that Boaz would be from this clan. He's provided this field. He's provided the stuff that grows in this field. He's provided the rain so that this will grow up and be able to be prosperous. The Lord has been working in the background years in the making. That all seemed probably quite inconsequential at the time. I could imagine as Boaz was a young man coming up and was deciding to Plant and to take over this field, likely from his father, probably felt like just like any other day, any other son taking over this field. And who is to think that one day that the person who is going to wander into this field was going to produce the future king of Israel? He doesn't know any of that. And it just seems like another barley harvest as we get started. But the Lord is working even in the mundane. And he's been working in Boaz himself to form his character and Ruth's character and how those two are going to interact. And that's what we get now into our second point, which we'll spend more of our time on, the fact that the Lord works through character. So let's see how these two have been introduced. So first, Ruth looks at this situation and decides she is going to be the one that is going to go out and see if she can find somebody that's going to be kind to her and glean in the field. I could imagine it would have been a temptation for Ruth to say, it's like, well, Naomi, you lived here for a long time before I did. Maybe you know some of these people. Maybe you'll have more luck going out and being able to glean food for us. So why not you go out and I'll wait here? I am the foreigner after all, so it's much less likely that I'm going to do something. But she knows Naomi is older. This would be very difficult for her to be able to go out into this field. So she's going to do it. She's going to take this risk. So she goes out and gleans in this field. And then she happened to come to the part of the field by Boaz. It's wonderful how in the language that's been written in, that would literally say that she chanced by chance to end up in this field. Really trying to emphasize this wink and a nod. It's not by chance. The, the Hebrews didn't believe in chance or luck. But it's putting it and framing it in this way to help draw your attention to, of all the fields that she could have ended up in, she happens to end up in Boaz's field, obviously guided by the Lord. One commentator went so far as to translate it, by sheer luck she ended up in Boaz's field, to try to really give you the sense of what this is saying. So now she's here with Boaz. And then verse 4, it says, And behold, look! Check it out, here comes Boaz, the very guy she needs to meet. Our eligible bachelor from verse 1 is making his appearance here in verse 4. And look how he interacts with his workers. He says, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. This is a this is a man who is not looking to just, I have set aside my human tools to go out and do these things, but he cares about them. And he's there in the field with them and blessing them in the name of the Lord. And then he comes up and asks his young man, because he notices that there is a woman he's not seen before here in the field. That's some attention to detail and someone who cares about his servants and his workers. The fact that he would know enough of them to be able to say, hey, there's a new face I haven't seen before. Who is this? And the way that this is framed, he says, "Who whose young woman is this? Reinforces the idea from this time that it was those that were under either the care of a husband or a son. There was the expectation or a servant that this woman was being taken care of. But here the young man conveys what has happened and who she is and where she's going. Has come back with Naomi. He knows what's happened to Naomi. It's a small town, it's probably around just a few hundred people that would live in Bethlehem. Word gets around as to what's happened to Naomi. And then he brings out this detail in verse 7. Again, talking about Ruth's character here. She says, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came and has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Uh, You may notice if you have a Bible with some footnotes, you might see a little number there. Uh, It says that the Hebrew is uncertain. Just so this way we're we're abreast of these issues. This is not something where this is a particularly important detail. The Hebrew is uncertain as to whether it was she has been standing and waiting for permission until you got here or she has been working. This whole time, that's the difference with the Hebrew. It's amazing what scholars will get hung up on, but that's what we're talking about. So moving on from this issue, then into verse eight, Boaz interacts with Ruth and notice how tenderly he's talking to her. He says, now, listen, my daughter, this is the same term that Naomi uses for her when she says, go, my daughter is this tender thing, but it also tells you the age gap that we're dealing with here. So this, as we're going through this, the idea that Ruth and Boaz would have considered marriage at this point, this was not likely. As these would have been quite, quite a gap in age. But here he speaks tenderly to her and tells her to stay close to the young women and to be careful of the young men. He's taking care of them, to charge them, to treat her respectfully. You can imagine at this time, which was... A time of lawlessness and godlessness that you would find someone who is weak and vulnerable and a foreigner that it would be tem- tempting to abuse them. But he has made sure that that's not going to happen. And then he goes and says that gives her permission to drink from the water that the young men have drawn. This is an, this is an interesting detail, something I hadn't noticed prior to the um, commentaries. But when you would draw water for a culture, it would be the foreigners that would draw the water for the locals. And it would be the women that would draw for the men. But here, the men have gone out and drawn this water, and he's letting the foreigner woman drink from it. So this is an amazing detail and... Uh, graciousness that he's giving to her that would not be expected for that culture That's something that's expected for us in a land where we're talking about that folks are created equal and we have an equality uh, at least theory here in our country but here this is something that would have been very unusual points to the gracious quality that boaz has and she notices this and here in verse 10 So she falls on her face, bowing to the ground and says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She's blown away by this, that the Lord would provide this through Boaz, that he has been compassionate to her. Um, One of the Commentators had said that that Boaz is a good man that is guided by the law, but is driven by its spirit. Here, the law dictated that all he needed to do was leave the edges of his field for people to glean. It's all the law required. But he went and goes above and beyond as driven by the spirit of that law, which is provide for those that don't have what they need. Provide for the vulnerable. Provide for the marginalized. Is what he's doing. But then as he continues, notice when she's just given to him this gratitude and said, wow, you know, you're doing all of this for me. Notice how he answers in verse 11. All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. How you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And then look what he says here in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Notice, as the commentators pointed out, he's not taking any credit for himself. He's not pointing out his graciousness. He's not saying, because you've done this, I will provide my fields, my grain, my water, all these things. Instead, as one commentator pointed out, that, the, that Boaz is invoking God's help rather than pointing to his own generosity. He is looking to the Lord to provide. He sees himself, as another commentator pointed out, as a steward rather than an owner of the field. And that, he, and that his resources that he has are by unmerited grace. What this commentator is saying is that he is looking at his field as something that has been entrusted to him to use for God's purposes, not his own. So when he sees someone who is in need, someone that the Lord cares very deeply about, widows and children, we see this all through the scriptures. In fact, even in the New Testament in James, this says the true religion is those that care for orphans and widows. This is what he's doing. So this isn't something that he is trumpeting on in and of himself. It's a field that's been given to him and one that he intends to use for God's glory and for God's purposes. So he continues here. In ver- so the story continues in verse 13 when she responds. She says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, which is what she was searching for here in verse 2. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Here, one commentator had pointed out the possibility. I'm not not sure about this, but I but I, I like the direction that she mistakenly refers to herself as his servant. he has been so kind to her that she almost loses the idea here in verse 10. She was a foreigner and now she's his servant. And she kind of corrects herself as it gets to the end of the verse. Though I'm not one of your servants, you've treated me as one of them, as those that you've provided for. Well, the generosity continues as we get into verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. Here he is not only attending the meal with his servants and eating with them as this measure of solidarity, but he is feeding Ruth almost by hand, giving her this roasted grain so that she is able to eat at his table. And then hard worker that she is, she gets back up and heads back out into the field. And the generosity continues. And he says, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So instead of just you stick to the corners, now she's able to go into the main fields And in fact, even the stuff that's already been cut and already been bound to be gathered in, go ahead and start pulling some of this out and leave it on the ground so this way she doesn't have to go through the process of cutting and binding all of this together. Again, Boaz has nothing to gain from this. There is this big age gap. He's not expecting to be asked to marry Ruth. We know that that's how the story goes, but he doesn't yet. This is another few months before that gets happened. So he has no stake in this. He's giving up of his food to go and provide for this widow. We are able in our society, it's easier for us to be generous. We can give money away and we can go out and we can go make money. We can go find additional jobs. We can pick up some other things. It's easy for us to create more money, more currency to go out and back to the store and buy some more food. But when you give away your grain, that's not coming back until next year. If you get rain. So this is a permanent sacrifice that he is giving to somebody. He does not know who is a foreigner, but he knows he's attached to Naomi and Naomi's got to eat. Naomi's got to be taken care of a very selfless person. In fact, I like the way one commentator put it, that he is no mercy minimalist, but he he's not obeying God's law to the bare minimum to get by. But again, as that other commentator said, he's driven by the spirit of that law. Well, let's see what kind of day Ruth has had as we get to verse 17, to the harvest. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, for those of you like me who don't know what an ephah is, and apparently there's also disagreement among scholars as to what an ephah is, surprise, surprise, This is anywhere from 30 to 50 pounds of grain that she has harvested. So this represents a lot of work. And again, depending again on what measure you're looking at, this is about a week's worth of food that she's able to make for the two of them. So depending, again, on whether it's 30 or 50 pounds here, if she's able to have a day like that for the rest of the barley season, then she can basically have secured a year's worth of food for her family. This is a lot of work, a lot to carry back, too. This is a strong lady as she's bringing this back to her mother-in-law. In In verse 18, she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Saved some of her lunch. So this way she would have something ready to eat, because this grain was already roasted. Here she is feeding Naomi. It shouldn't be lost on us that a Moabite is feeding an Israelite. It's a reversal of what's happened before. And shows us as to why David is... Not the worse off for having Ruth in his family tree. It's not one that brings a curse. It's mentioned in Romans, as other commentators have pointed out, that not all Israel is Israel. Just because that you were a Jew does not mean that you are following after God. Paul recognized that for them. And this is the same thing here true with Ruth. Not all Moabites are Moabites. In in Deuteronomy, yes, it says that a Moabite is not to enter into the temple for ten generations. But here we can see here in Ruth, there is a difference for some Moabites. Some who have put themselves and sought the Lord for refuge and shown this one's different. This one provides. This one has been worked on. And we can see the effect that... This has on Naomi. Verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. The prayers from earlier. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. This is a very different Naomi than what we saw in chapter 1, isn't it? The one who wanted to rename herself bitter, because Naomi means pleasant. Figured that the Lord was against her, and now she's praising the Lord, seeing how he's provided for her. And there's some ambiguity as to what this sentence here reads in English. But it says... uh, May he be blessed by, by by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. There's a question of what is who is who that we're referring to. Is this the Lord that has not forsaken uh, the living or the dead with his kindness? Or is it Boaz? Structurally, from a sentence structure standpoint, this is referring to Boaz. The same sentence structure shows up in other places, and every time it's referring not to the Lord but to this person here. That Boaz has not forgotten his kindness to the living or the dead. What he's referring referring to there is her husband and her sons who have passed away. He's honoring them by providing for their widow and their mother that has been grieved. But even here, while syntactically it's referring to Boaz, theologically we also know the Lord is behind that as well. Who has provided Boaz? Who's provided that field? Who's formed that character in both Ruth and Boaz to bring this whole thing together? The Lord has not forsaken the living or the dead in his kindness as well. Because he's worked through them. And then Naomi continues in verse 20. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Sets that up for later. In verse 21, And Ruth, the Moabite, said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Notice, uh, had this a commentator had pointed it out that she is she mistakes Boaz's words and says to stay close to her to his male servants. He didn't actually say that. He said stay close to the female servants. She gets a little confused, and Naomi corrects her and says, "No, stay close to the female servants," which again underscores the danger and the risk that she's taken going out into these fields. Because even Boaz and Naomi both recognize the danger of being with these young men. And it also reinforces the fact that she's staying here with the young women, keeping herself available for Boaz, as we see in the later chapters. Here, the Lord working through all of these things. And finally, verse 23. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Here, this has been a long-term provision. This wasn't a one and done for Boaz. Well, I did my duty. I was generous. That's it. You you got yourself to glean. Now, pick yourself up. Gave you a week. He has continued all through this harvest. And indeed, she has kept up, as, one, as commentators pointed out, kept up with her mother-in-law as well. Ruth has been faithful, and so has Boaz. And this has been carrying on now for probably another two or three months as they've been going through this harvest period. Again, it probably didn't feel like much was happening. All right, I go up, I cut some grain, I beat it out, I bring it home. Again, and again, and again. And it seems like nothing's happening. But the Lord is working through those circumstances. We can feel that same way too. We can feel like when we go to church, when we pray for our family... And it's been going on for months and months and years and years. And sometimes we don't see anything big happening. And we can tend to think, well, I guess the Lord's just not doing anything at this point. We're all just kind of sitting around and waiting for the Lord to act. And that's not the case. He is acting in these moments, these day-to-day little things that we tend to not even notice. He's working in us. And most importantly, especially as we're staying in his word and in prayer and in church week after week, year after year, day after day, the Lord is forming a character in us. Boaz didn't become this from on day one. He might not have been always this generous all the time. but The Lord was working in him. Ruth may not have always been this hardworking. We don't know. Maybe she was or maybe she was formed by a tragedy of losing her father-in-law and her husband. Lord works through those things. Remember, I was listening to um, a podcast, listening to some some guys reflecting on their military experience. And one of the things that the guy said was a former Green Beret. He had mentioned and asked the question, are you ready for this? And never defined what this was. Because it could be anything. What are you ready for? And he would answer those questions by being physically fit ready to carry anybody who might be in danger or an accident or ready to run away from danger if it was there. And he mostly emphasized that section. But are we ready if you are called to make a really difficult spiritual decision? Are you ready for the widow to show up at your door? Are you ready for the orphan to walk by your neighborhood? What are you doing to prepare for that? Not something you prepare for by doing push-ups. But it's something that we prepare for by doing prayer, staying in his word. We all have had those times in our lives where we've been very close to the Lord and we're really ready to make hard decisions. We feel very close to the Lord as we're doing those things. But it's very easy to become complacent about that and just assume, well, it will be just like tomorrow, just like it was today. Are you ready for this? How do we get ready? Oh, one one commentator had some, some questions for us to think about and some things to ask. She posited three. First question to ask was, what do we have? Taking stock of the things that we possess physically and spiritually. What do we have? And the second question is, whom do we see? Who's around us? Sometimes even just, af- just realizing that there are people around us is progress. I remember hearing um, someone talking about that they had, a, they had a revelation when they got older, is that other people exist. <laughs> and it sounds a little silly and sometimes funny to even say that, but it's true. It's easy for us to just get caught up in our own world and our own problems and our own needs and our own thoughts if we don't even see there's other people that need stuff. Not just stuff, but eat the gospel. What do we have? Whom do we see? And finally, who do we know? The different question than who do we see. Whom do we know? Who we know who God is. The God who provides. Who does not in his kindness forsake the living and the dead. That's who we know. So when God calls us to be generous... We don't have to look at God and say, okay, well, you told me to be generous to these people. Are you going to leave me in the lurch? You're going to push me out and say, it's like, well, you went too far with that generosity, man. Who do we know? And not just a God who has an ownership of us, who by virtue of who he is, is able to just command us and say, look, I created you. I feel your lungs are there. Go out and do what I tell you to do. This is also a God who says, "I've loved you so much that even though you have done nothing but sin, nothing but be offensive to God, that God, at great sacrifice to himself, sends His Son to live the life that we should have lived, always generous to those that were around him, and then died the death that we should have died, for our stinginess, for our lack of gratitude, for what we do have, for our refusal to engage in what he's told us to do. Took all of that sin onto himself, died, and rose again from the grave. Every once in a while on social media, you'll see someone post, I wish we could just take all the world's financial debt, college, credit, and otherwise, pin it to one guy, and then kill him. Replace all of that debt. And then a pastor come into the comment section and says, I have wonderful news for you. Every few months, somebody reinvents Christianity. But well, that's exactly what's happened. We are all ungenerous people. We are all people that will miss those that are right in front of us. But the Lord has taken that debt, pinned it to Jesus, killed him on the cross, and wiped all that debt away so that we can be free. That's what's been done for us. That's an incredible act of generosity. In fact, the ultimate act of generosity. Jesus was far more of a noble man than even Boaz, as one commentator said. This is a beautiful thing. And as Mary, a wonderful commentator, has put it this way, the extent to which Christians have grasped the enormity of God's generosity to them in Christ will be demonstrated in the extent to which they show or fail to show glad, humble generosity to others. In other words, if you want to know how well you grasp what God has done for you? What do you do for others? What's your level of generosity to those that are around you? That will give you a beautiful picture as to what it is that the Lord has done in your own life. So what's our takeaway from all of this? The Lord has been incredibly generous to you. And the Lord is continuing to work in your life to provide for you in the here and now. So trust in him. And also the Lord works through you too. So work for him. You don't have to be just dragged along and hope that the Lord will do something with you. Go out and do it. Go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus. Because he's empowered you to do that. It's a wonderful opportunity that we have been given. So go and embrace that. And know that the God of Ruth and Naomi is your God. Who's provided for your needs. Who's looking out for you. And who has given you a wonderful gospel to go and take to the rest of the world. Now you may say, it's like, well... This generosity may cost me a lot. It might. But remember where you're going. We are going to an eternal reward. We're going to heaven. And we can't take anything that we have here. So go and put it, as we saw in our New Testament reading, put your money bags in places where thieves can't get to them. Put your treasure in heaven. Keep those as priorities. It doesn't mean that we sell all of our houses and be homeless. But it says, use your homes to, be, to welcome in the stranger. Use those things that you have been given. Those resources, those jobs, that money, your skills, your time. All of these things, use and enjoy for God's good glory. And you will find the Lord will richly bless and provide for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this word that we have seen, a promise that you will take care of us. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll always have everything that we might desire, but we will have everything we need because we will have you. I pray that you would help us to see that in our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.